You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, it's Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, back again to highlight what I think are particularly important articles published in the March edition of the journal. First article I want to highlight examines the role of a commercially available biomarker kit in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. It is entitled Update and Clinical Utility of Multi-Biomarker Disease Activity Testing in the United States. It is by Curtis and colleagues from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, USA. In recent years, much effort has been put into developing biomarkers for disease activity in RA. In 2012, a 12-analyte biomarker disease activity test, or the MBDA test for RA, became commercially available. The aims of the current study were to, one, describe the use of MBDA in RA patients enrolled in Medicare in the U.S., two, determine the likelihood of RA treatment switching based on the MBDA score, and three, examine improvement in the MBDA score as a predictor of treatment response. The investigators used Medicare data from the years 2011 to 2015 and linked each patient with RA to their MBDA test result. During the study period, 75,000 RA patients had at least one MBDA test. The authors then evaluated the likelihood of adding or switching a biologic agent or a JAK inhibitor based on the MBDA score. Read the paper to find out the association of MBDA score and the likelihood of a physician switching or initiating a biologic agent or JAK inhibitor based on the score. You will also learn the value of retesting this analyte panel in predicting the lack of improvement in MDBA score and how a categorization of these scores into low, moderate, or high score predicted the probability of a subsequent treatment failure. The authors review for you both the strengths and weaknesses of this study. I hope that after you read this article, you will have a better appreciation of the value of MBDA testing in RA and whether it may be helpful in personalized medicine. The second article I will highlight examines the effect of pregnancy on RA disease activity as entitled, Does Rheumatoid Arthritis Really Improve During Pregnancy? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. By Jeff Wall and colleagues, London Northwest Healthcare, NHS Trust, the Royal Free Hospital, University College London, the UK. There's also an accompanying editorial entitled, It is Time to Modify Treatment to Enable More Women with Rheumatoid Arthritis to Have Successful Pregnancies. By Klaus from Duke University Medical Center, USA. It was recognized in the 19th century that pregnancy improves RA disease activity, although there may be a postpartum flare. However, many of these earlier studies used historic data and more recent prospective studies demonstrated a more modest improvement in RA disease activity during pregnancy than originally reported. 
The authors of this study performed a systematic review and meta-analysis to assess rheumatoid arthritis disease activity during pregnancy and postpartum using objective disease activity scoring systems. They systematically reviewed PubMed, MBIS, Medline, Cochrane, and LACMED databases. Following a review initially of the article's title and abstract, they identified 63 articles for a full review of which 10 studies were used in the final analysis. A total of 237 patients had a prepartum disease activity data documented, while postpartum disease activity was recorded in 135 pregnancies. Read the article to determine for yourself how convincing the data is for improvement during pregnancy in RA patients and how often a postpartum flare was seen. Please read the accompanying editorial by Dr. Klaus, who puts the evidence presented by Jethwal et al. into a patient-level perspective. I hope after reading both the systemic review and meta-analysis and the accompanying editorial that you will be in a better position to counsel your RA patient about the likelihood of improvement of their RA disease activity during pregnancy as well as the risk of a postpartum flare. For the third article, we move away from both RA and pregnancy and look at thrombosis in ANCA-associated vasculitis. This paper is entitled High Incidence of Arterial and Venous Thrombosis in Anti-Neutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibody-Associated Vasculitis and is by Kang and colleagues from Imperial College London, the UK. Antineutrophil cytoplasmic associated vasculitis, or AAV, is generally not regarded as an illness that carries a high risk of thrombosis as compared to many other inflammatory diseases, including SLE. The objective of the study was to determine the incidence of arterial thrombotic events and venous thromboembolism in ANCA-associated vasculitis. In this paper, the authors performed a retrospective cohort study of all 204 patients seen at their center over a 10-year period with a diagnosis of AAV. The median follow-up was 5.8 years. The majority of the patients studied had GPA at 54%. 71% of patients had renal involvement. Overall, 11.8% of patients had an arterial thrombotic event for an incidence of 2.67 person years, 1.56 for coronary events, and 1.10 for ischemic stroke. And interestingly, 31% of the events occurred within the first year following diagnosis. Venous thromboembolism was seen less frequently at 6.9%, for an event rate of 1.47 per 100 patient years, 0.8 for DVT only, and 0.64 for PE with or without DVT. Again, the risk of event was highest within the first year following diagnosis as 44% of the events occurred within this period. Read the paper to discover what risk factors or predictors of an arterial thrombotic event and venous thromboembolism, and if both or either were predictors of mortality.
The authors compare the rates of an arteriothrombotic event and venous thromboembolism to the reported rates in the UK general population. I know that after reading this paper, you will have a greater appreciation of the risk of thrombotic events in people with ANCA-associated vasculitis, and this will improve your management of these patients. Next paper I will discuss examines the use of steroid therapy in polymyalgia rheumatica and is entitled Permanent Discontinuation of Glucocorticoids in Polymyalgia Rheumatica is Uncommon but May Be Enhanced by Aminobisphosphonates by Gilio and colleagues from the University of Verona, Italy. The rationale for this paper is the observation that bisphosphonates may have immunosuppressive properties, and therefore they hypothesize that bisphosphonates could be a steroid-sparing agent in PMR. So how did they proceed to test this hypothesis? They performed a retrospective chart review of all 385 patients diagnosed in their clinic with at least two visits to the clinic. Cox regression analysis was used to examine the association between multiple clinical laboratory factors and discontinuation of steroids. Now a little background to the study cohort. The mean follow-up time was 37.7 months with a range of 9 to 57 months, and 53% of the patients were followed for greater than two years. Slightly greater than 60% were treated with bisphosphonate during the course of the study. 72% of total cohort were still on steroids at the last visit. And although 47% of patients were able to stop their steroid at one point, 39% of these patients subsequently flared and steroids were restarted. A Cox regression analysis showed that older age, number of relapse, peripheral involvement, and higher CRP were associated with persistent steroid therapy. Read the paper to find out what factors are associated with discontinuation of steroid therapy and what the effect of bisphosphonate's use on discontinuation of steroid therapy was after adjusting for the effect of other factors that were associated with steroid discontinuation. After reading the paper, you will find out why the authors believe that long-term steroid therapy is frequently required to treat patients with PMR and what the role of bisphosphonates may be in the management of PMR. The last paper discussed for the March edition of the journal is close to my pediatric rheumatology heart and is entitled, A Comparison of Radiographic Joint Space with Measurements versus Ultrasound Assessment of Cartilage Thickness in Children with Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis by Pradsgaard and colleagues from the University of Aarhus, Denmark. Joint space narrowing is usually the result of cartilage thinning in children with JIA. Although joint space narrowing is usually assessed by conventional radiography, it has been proposed that ultrasound may be a better method to measure joint space loss in JIA. Ultrasonographic measurement of joint cartilage thickness has been validated in healthy children and in the measurement of the distal femoral cartilage in a group of JIA patients. The aim of this study was to compare the measurement of cartilage thickness of the proximal cartilage in the second metacarpophalangeal joint, MCP, the second proximal 
interphalangeal joint, PIP, and both knees, as assessed by ultrasound to measure joint space width and compared to computerized radiography. They studied 74 children with JA age 5 to 15 years with a median age of 11.3 years. This cohort consisted of 28 patients with persistent oligoarticular GIA, 17 with rheumatoid factor negative polyarticular GIA, 15 with extended oligoarticular GIA, 10 patients with systemic GIA, and 4 with RF positive GIA. 69% of the knees examined had a history of active arthritis. In contrast, only 19% of the MCP joints and 13% of the PIP joints examined had a history of arthritis. Read this paper to find out what the level of agreement between ultrasound and computerized radiography was, and if the agreement was the same or different among the joints studied. You will also find out the author's recommendations and the advantages and disadvantages of these two modalities used to examine cartilage damage in patients with JA. As usual, I want to thank you all for listening to my review of what I felt were particularly important articles appearing in the March 2019 issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope my summaries will lead you to reading not only these five articles and their accompanying editorials, but in fact, all of the articles appearing in the March issue of the journal. Please read either the print edition or the online edition, which can be found at www.jroom.org. If you have any comments on this summary or any articles appearing in the journal of rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. I hope you will listen next month to the editor's pick for the April 2019 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology.